Physics World. Hello and welcome to the Physics World Stories podcast. I'm Andrew Glester and I'm suffering a little bit with hay fever, so I'll try and keep my voice to a minimum as we explore the influence of ChatGPT and other AI bots on the lives of physicists. We'll focus on how physics education may change as a response to these chatbots, but we'll also look at how physics as a discipline may change. What are the skills that future physicists will need? And what are the tasks that may be lost to artificial intelligence? Later, we'll hear from a student whose life as a physicist is really just beginning as the world around us changes as a result of artificial intelligence breakthroughs. But first, we'll hear from Philip Moriarty. But for this conversation to make sense, I do need to mention that I'm also a lecturer in science communication. Here's Phil Moriarty. I'm a physicist at the University of Nottingham. I've been here a very long time. Actually, next year, I'll be in Nottingham for 30 years. So as well as the lecturing side of things, which I really do enjoy, there's our research focuses on single atom manipulation, single molecule manipulation with scanning probe microscopes, looking at the forces between atoms. Ultimately, what I sometimes describe it as, though this is a little bit more applied than really what we're going for, it's really quite fundamental research, is can we do 3D printing with atoms? So can we build structures up atom by atom? So there's a lot of interest as well within the group in machine learning methods. Um, So ChatGPT and GPT-4 and things like that are certainly of interest. The, The... Problem is with GPT-4, it's um, like the successor to ChatGPT, but they've been a great deal more, um, uh, how can I put it, closed door about it. So in terms of how it's been trained, in terms of just what, uh, you know, parameter space there is, just what types of, of network. Um, it's obviously one of these pre-generative transformer models, which is where the GPT thing comes from. Um uh, but in terms of beyond that, they're getting a little bit more um, proprietary about things. So it's actually quite difficult to tell what's going on. It's interesting. We've evolved to the point where our artificial neural networks are just as complicated and impossible to understand as the organic neural networks in our head. So in terms of all the layers. I wanted to know why AI bots such as ChatGPT are significant from a physics perspective. How can they help physicists in their work? But I also wanted to get to the heart of where some of the fears come from. The, the interesting thing from a physics perspective, it, it's now capable of interpreting images. Its spatial reasoning seems to be a heck of a lot better than ChatGPT. Um, and it's one paper I've just pulled off the archive um, said that it has put uh, GPT-4 through its paces on something called the force concept inventory, which is... Generally, if you want to test the efficacy of different um, undergraduate courses, particularly first-year courses, Newton's Laws, Kinematics, etc., you give them this FCI, Force Concept Inventory, at the start, you give them at the end, and you hope that you've actually had a positive influence on them. ChatGPT got 20... Sorry, not ChatGPT. ChatGPT actually got about a 50% score. GPT-4... First time it saw that uh, inventory, that set of questions got 28 out of 30, which is rather scary. <laughs> so it can increasingly do physics. But why is that scary? Uh, it's interesting um, in terms of, 
it's both scary and very impressive. I guess scary almost in an impressive sense. I think we've got to, there's an awful lot of hand wringing and there's an awful lot of let's let's try and um, shut this down, make sure students don't get access to it, let's ban it. That's obviously not going to work. It's a really powerful tool, but we have to learn how to exploit it. And there's a broader question as well in that, you know, even if we do ban it, what's the point in sending students out into the big bad world with skills that chat that, that GPT-4 and its successors, you know, can just, they can do it in a fraction of the time a student could do it or a graduate could do it. We have to be giving them skill sets that complement what an AI can do. Otherwise, what's the point of us? What is the point of us? You know, more tangibly, what do physicists now who are, you know, going through education, what should they be, what skills should they be learning so that they're still needed in 2040 or beyond? I think the, the funda- most fundamental skill we can give them is not how to, you know, uh, think about and write down a Hamiltonian. It's not to think about how they're going to do some problem in quantum mechanics or classical fields or how to do one bit of div grad or curl. It's how to educate themselves. That's that's the skill we really should be teaching them, that to have that independence, self-reliance, resilience to be able to teach themselves. Um, obviously, we have to do that within the context of physics. We're teaching physics, but the... The thing is, if we're playing catch up really with the technology and we're going to lose, we really are going to lose because it's it's developing. I know exponentially is a word that's thrown around or a term that's thrown around a great deal, but I think it's pretty clear it's developing exponentially. And yeah, I think we radically need to change what we're doing. You know, the old style exam question of please regurgitate pages 42 to 47 of your notes, this derivation that doesn't work anymore. And it didn't work when I was an undergraduate or when any of us was an undergraduate. I remember clearly in third year being able to do all the equations in terms of minority and majority um, carry occurrence in a PN junction. You ask me, sit me down and ask me to explain in a few sentences, what is a PN junction? How does it work? I don't know, but I can regurgitate those derivations. So we have to think yeah, we radically need to change things. Yeah, it's an interesting one. I think back to sort of, I don't know what March twenty twenty with COVID on the, you know, suddenly arriving and conversations happening at universities that were sort of, you know, well maybe by January we'll be back to normal, and the, you know how that changed the way that we had to teach and and the way we had to do things. It was kind of, you know, one thing, but this feels like we we don't know where if ChatGPT4, as you say, exponential, if ChatGPT4 can do what it's being talked about doing, then what does 5, 6, 7, 8, 10 do? And so we can't plan now based on what ChatGPT and others can do now, yeah. right? So I, so I was, dis- I've got to admit, with the, with the, uh, you know, COVID pandemic, etc., and, and all the changes. I really thought we had a massive opportunity to grasp the nettle and shake things up. That's not what happened, and some of that might be our fault and general sort of academic, 
university inertia. But a lot of it's also coming from the students. There is nothing easier for the students and for us, for them to sit in a lecture theatre among 200 other students and listen to us drone on for 50 minutes. And it's, it's really disappointing that that's seen as the pinnacle of education. And that's what they want, or that's what they claim to want. They want, you know, well, it's not what they claim. It's absolutely what quite a few of them want. So I don't want to generalize across the board. There are others who are keen on the sort of more interactive approach and sort of trying to shake things up a little bit. But quite a few just wanted, I want to go to the lecture theater. I want to listen to you. I want to note it down. And then I want to regurgitate it in the exam. The, the, the simplest solution from an education point of view seems to me to be that in terms of assessment, we go back to closed book exams that happen in a room at a particular time. Yeah. Is that is that the only solution? Or what, I mean, I think it would be disappointing if that's the only solution, but particularly with ChatGPT and uh, whatever GPT models in general, when they can, they're now getting, as I said, 28 out of 30 on, on first year physics problems. And I also noticed... Um, Scott Aronson, who's a quantum computing expert, his blog is brilliant, by the way. Um, he set a GPT for his quantum computing exam paper, so fairly advanced quantum concepts, and it got 69, 69%. Right. So just just slightly off a of first. Mm -hmm. So if the... If we continue to set traditional exam papers, it has to be in, as you say, and under those closed conditions, but that just seems archaic to me. What would um, you like to see then? Yeah, that's a very good question. <laughs> it's a very, so the, I think we need to embed um, GPT um, and these, these models, the, the AIs of whatever um, stripe into our, our teaching and indeed into our assessment. I don't know. We get to the point where we tell GPT for, um, to, it can already, GPT-4 can already do this, but it can simulate certain physical systems. I don't know, like a simple pendulum or a driven pendulum. We ask the students to predict the output, but we could even do things like ask GPT to deliberately include errors in the physics and ask for the students to, to pick those out. I think we have to be really open with the students. I think, you know, we say use GPT, um, use AIs, use whatever you can in terms of writing your report, but tell us where you've used that. The issue then is, of course, that's relying a great deal on the student's honesty, and that mightn't happen. So we have to think about just how we build in use of, of these models, these, these AIs, into our into our assessment and indeed our teaching processes where it's great for example on the teaching side rather than the assessment side is and i've already used to do do this generate some multiple choice questions for me on this topic and that's great and then you use those in the class and with whatever online polling thing so it's a real benefit then um there's also things like um in principle uh you know closed captioning putting captions on videos lecture videos or whatever we could ask it to do that, though it might still struggle with my accent. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so there are, there are a lot of a lot of benefits, but the assessment side is is the tricky one, as you say. Well, how, where's where's your stance? How do you feel? Do you are you happy with traditional exams as they are? No, I'm. Not, I mean, so I don't teach physics. I teach 
wildlife filmmaking, podcasting, uh, science filmmaking. So it's it's quite easy for me to move into areas where, at least at the moment, artificial intelligence isn't particularly good in terms of making podcasts and films. But there's the thing, why? So that's exactly it. So that's the type of thing we should be asking our students to do. Make videos, make short YouTube videos, make podcasts, add in a lot more sort of of the creative side of things. One thing that does drive me up the wall, and particularly as my kids have gone through school, is that we have the STEM subjects over here, and that's for all the drones. And over here, we have the creative subjects. And there's so much creativity, of course, in science. But we need to exploit that a little bit more in, in undergraduate degrees. Yeah, and indeed, no, postgraduate, yeah. you know, postgraduate yeah, no, degrees. No, as well. I, I mean, you're not going to find me disagreeing with that, obviously, because it's my it's my bread and butter. But um, yeah, no, I th- I mean, it it seems to me though that there's possibly a time in the future where, you know, podcasts are being generated by artificial intelligence. I, I thought maybe they are, but maybe they're not that good. Oh, I think know? there's a time coming. Um, there's a t- in the not too distant future where if I want to generate a lecture video. I type, I give it some some video of me and the key themes, and it generates a deepfake. Mm. I don't think that time is too far off. No. Would you use that? <laughs> no, <laughs> I wouldn't, for the same reason that I wouldn't. I like to write, um, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't use, I know this is increasingly common to use ChatGPT or GPT-4 to actually write the introductions to papers. Journals have said that they're not going to accept that, but I've read quite a few blog posts and quite a few articles where people have freely admitted they've used GPT-4 in some sort of creative sense. And that doesn't sit well with me because it's essentially plagiarism. We've had essay mills for some time now, and maybe the people who make essay mills should be the most worried because they yeah. don't need them. Oh, anymore. they are. They really are. So, it, it, But again, there's, there's um, some on the education side, actually the legal education, well, they would claim they're legal as well, allegedly. <laughs> um, but even Khan Academy, for example, is going to use GPT-4 as a virtual tutor. So it's it's... Um, and that that's also a good idea. In fact, we could use GPT-4 as a virtual tutor in sort of real time in a, in a classroom or indeed in a lab. It's, you know, the one the big issue in, in if you've got a class, I, one of my first jobs here was to revamp our second year uh, lab. And I was second year uh, lab organizer for, oh God seven years, eight years, I can't remember. And one of the issues is always having enough demonstrators because particularly on a Friday afternoon when the experiments aren't working and 14 hands are up, you're going to... If we had a sort of virtual lab assistant, particularly now because it can interpret images, you could almost envision a a situation whereby the student takes a, a photo or takes a video of this piece of kit isn't working. What are your suggestions? So uh, can we just step away from education for a bit? Because there's, it's it's not just going to affect physicists who are learning, is it? It's going to affect physicists who are uh, in practice, isn't it? It's interesting. This paper that I, um, just from the ARC, a guy called um, Colin G. West, who's at the University of Colorado, and it was uploaded actually just April, April the 16th. There's a great, the final paragraph of his paper, which is well worth reading and get in the archive. I'll just give everybody the title if they want to chase it up. It's Advances in Apparent Conceptual Physics Reasoning in GPT-4. 
And the final paragraph is, ultimately, perhaps what is most intriguing is what GPT-4 tells us not about the future of our classrooms, but about our future conceptions of physics as a discipline. GPT-4 succeeds at physics tasks, even though it is only explicitly programmed to emulate human speech and not provided directly with any of the formal structure of mathematics or the laws of physics. So it's, it's changing not only how we teach, but it will change how we do research. In fact, the, the computer scientists are already talking about, you know, coding will evolve to the point where it's prompt engineering. You, you, you engineer the right prompts to feed to an AI to give you the code. And we're, again, probably not too far off. In fact, in some cases, it's already doing this, where you feed it data and it picks out correlations in that data. And it's okay that, that you can sort of accept, but then it goes the further step and comes up with a physical model to explain the, those, those correlations. That's very close, I would say. And then again, where does that leave us? So, so if we're going to work alongside these things, we need to find, I guess it's again, that, that, that collaboration between the artificial neural nets and the organic neural nets. We will complement each other and we'll, hopefully, I'd like to think that it's, it's creativity, the AI's creativity will be sort of complementing ours. It works in a slightly different way. Perhaps even then, it's it's strange thing. You know, we've got billions upon billions of neurons in there. You've got effectively billions upon billions of artificial neurons for the um, for some of these very sophisticated models. What's the difference? We could get into a <laughs> bit of an existential crisis here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely. I, so, like, if you're if you're working at LIGO or you're working at CERN or is this affecting you? I th I think it could be in terms of of data analysis. In terms of, it's already so we're trying to build in different neural nets into what we do, which is all about image interpretation, and or at least partly about image interpretation, but also about spectral analysis. So looking for correlations in different spectra. There's already been a couple of papers, a number of papers published over the last few years, where they fed a lot of data over, say, the course of a decade to an uh, unsupervised neural net and asked it to find the correlations in the data that humans didn't spot. And there's actually been a Nature paper published on this where the, the AI spotted those correlations that we didn't spot. So I think it's it's like all these things. It's not going to be of, you know black or white issue it's going to so everything's going to sort of fall in that gray area where we have some sort of convergence i hope well it's either that or really or ai overlords are going to take over <laughs> we're doomed yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> are you a science fiction fan i am yeah i'm a big star trek fan oh, for okay. one thing yeah, okay yeah. but i mean it, it, should we be watching you know 2001 um ex machina and thinking, mm -hmm. now that's a classic, isn't it? Both of those yeah. are classics, of course. Yeah, oh, oh, right. yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. Her, you know, there's, there's there's a number of films out there about this this topic. How close are they to sort of the reality that we're going to see? If you'd asked me ten years ago, I'd said, "Oh, that's just so so many centuries ahead." Now, um, we're they're pretty close. I would say, I would say they're pretty close, and. Um, 
yeah, it's well already we've had Musk at all in about I don't know how many it is in total a thousand um, thought leaders as I'm sure they'd like to describe themselves um, call for a sort of moratorium on on AI research. So it's I think that's misguided as well because again trying to shut it down for one thing you'll just drive stuff underground. And plus, Musk with his Neuralink stuff, which is not the most open um, research platform in the world, um, it's just a little bit hypocritical for him to call for a moratorium. So, yeah, it's I in terms of the science fiction. Yeah, I think there's lots that we can learn from the dystopian scenarios in some science fiction novels. Yeah, whether we would or not is another question, isn't it? I mean, I've said about you. I've read, read Ready Player One. And I can see that happening right before mm-hmm. our eyes at this particular mm-hmm. moment. So I don't see why. Yeah. I mean, it's it's all very well and good academics sitting around saying we need to work out how to do this. But, you know, so are the other people who are maybe not as motivated in the same way. Precisely. Absolutely. And Ready Player One, of course, I was bitterly disappointed with the movie because they just took out the bit about Rush. <laughs> yeah, okay, fair enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was so happy a book that included Rush's 2112. There's a dystopian future for you as oh, well um, yeah. as a core part of the plot. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, we're going to go off topic slightly, but let's do that. So have you seen them live, Rush? Oh, lots of yeah. times. Are you a fan as yeah, well? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, 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 brilliant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah um, I saw them four times on the Time Machine tour because they did moving <sighs> pictures in its entirety. Brilliant. So, um, favourite Mike. So, the conversation did slightly veer off at this moment as we went into our favourite concerts by the Canadian rock band Rush. And as interesting as I'm sure you'd find that, we did return to the conversation of artificial intelligence. So I did speak to somebody who who signed that um, that letter to the oh. moratorium with with Elon Musk. It, was, it wasn't Elon Musk that I spoke to, <laughs> but it was someone else who I won't I won't name. And they said that essentially that was a line in the sand. They didn't think it was going to change anything. It was just to say, look, we know this is coming, and we're alerting. Yeah, you it's a it. PR exercise, really. Yeah, absolutely. No, I I, I agree, and it's I, I think <sighs> there is some value in that even if it is just a sort of PR stunt to, to, to flag up that we need to be concerned about this. Um, but it's, you know, it really is a question of bolting the stable door after the horse has run away. I, I don't think, you know, the genie's out of the bottle. I don't think if I can pile you know, cliche on cliche, <laughs> um, I, I don't think it's going to be easy to, to stop this. As you, for us, exactly the reason you say, you might well have the academic research in the academic sector shut down, but not everybody's a good actor. So, yeah. If you are um, listening to this podcast and you're also, you know, in school now, the world looks very different. We need to ensure that we are preparing kids for a, a very much a brave new world um, where a lot of the skills that we've taught in the past would be completely redundant. So there's creativity. There's being able to educate yourself. What does that mean? Don't rely on, you know, us to go, there's the textbook, there's what you should read. It's like I should in principle be able to go, right, here's a problem in quantum mechanics, off you go. That's where I'd like 
you know, you might say that's just making us completely redundant, but it's a question of how we design the um, the activities, how we design the the um, the assessment as well, that will lead students to that point. So at least by the time they're in their final year or the penultimate year, they're at the point where sort of we are almost redundant in terms of delivering material. It's more about how they seek out that material, process that material, analyze that, be that with chat, GPT and the like, um, and then also present it. And that's coming back to the podcast thing, you know, being able to present it, being able to be persuasive um, in terms of either written, oral communication, whatever, those are valuable skills, but they're far outside the traditional skills we'd expect of a physicist. There's part of me that wants to say, well, I do teach on a master's in science communication. It sounds like we're going to be needed. But this- yeah, you absolutely will. Um, oh, we should get you to Nottingham sometime soon to tell us. All- <laughs> Honestly, um, yeah, um, to tell us all about that. Yeah, um, because we've got quite a few students who are interested in science communication. And I used to teach. Um, no, that's absolutely the wrong word. Uh, and I don't like the word deliver at all. Uh, how about convene? I used to convene a module, a fourth-year module called um, the Politics, Perception, and Philosophy of Physics, uh, which is still running. I'm no longer doing it. I, I paid my dues. I did it for seven or eight years, but it was very much developed along the lines of much more like a humanities module, whereby discussion, debate, and we cover things like uh, the so-called science wars, where you know you've got one group of sociologists saying that there's nothing truly discovered by science, everything's culturally related, etc. And you've also got the scientists who balk at that, but also things like peer review. How does peer review work? Um, you know, gender balance, all those types of things. And the first time I ran it and tried to sort of prompt this discussion, I was really, really worried because it's a group of 40 physics graduates, or undergraduates, and I'm thinking, okay, this is going to be tumbleweed. So, okay. And I asked for the first, do the little intro, and then um, ask for the first question, and a hand goes up, and then the floodgates opened, and I had to kick them out after an hour and a half. So some of the, in that case, they knew the module they were going into, and they knew what it was like, what it was going to be like. So they were self-selecting in that sense. But I think this idea that absolutely every physicist is completely inept and in, entirely incapable of um, communicating, he says as he struggles to get through that sentence. <laughs> Um, is is not always the case. So, yes, the ability to communicate is uh, just essential. And, again, it's something that's not traditionally in, in university physics courses, although there's a lot of fo- increasing focus on um, presentation in terms of scientific presentation, technical presentation, less so on, well explain to you know somebody with absolutely no background in science why we should care about your particular research in three sentences go absolutely you've recently been on the physics world weekly podcast speaking about quantum woo yeah and that's i think that's my concern my main concern with life generally is people following stuff that's not true and and leading themselves down it or being led down particular paths which are 
harmful to them and others. And with GPT and others like it making up stuff, including making up references, there are a number of cases where students have used GPT and the way they've been caught is not in terms of that you know this, you're nodding, you know this, has not, but for those who perhaps don't, they um, has not been in terms of the writing style. It's been that GPT has made up references and that's the only way it was caught. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's happened to me with a particular student doing a dissertation and essentially the whole dissertation was, was done via chat GPT and... Well, there's no policy, really. Like, there certainly wasn't at the time for um, what we do with that. And the not only was it only really recognisable by the fact that the um, citations and references were all made up, but um, that was the only way we could sort of say anything about it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So... This is what I mean about sort of genie in the genie out of the bottle. It's if we can't track this, and I think there have been some claims with ChatGPT, at least in terms of looking at the the way it uses or constructs the sentences. There may be there may be possibilities of detecting that it is AI generated. I think with GPT four, that's not really the case. I could be wrong, but if if so, it's much less the case and as it evolves it'll get to the point where it's indistinguishable if we're teaching students to learn for themselves the the tool they're going to use for that is the internet part of that is chat gpt4 or whatever it is in the future and is, is anybody in control of that who's is that nobody's in control of the internet so it's just how how do you f- discern what's true exactly Exactly, and that's a sk- that's a skill that many of us struggle to, to 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 keep on top of. So, getting that across to the next generation, getting that across to students is 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 certainly going to be problematic. But it's absolutely essential to be. Um, what's an authoritative source? You know, is I have my certain broadsheets that I like, and even by using the term broadsheet, I date myself. Um, you know, is the Guardian. <laughs> An authoritative source is the Times an authoritative source? You know, is Fox News an authoritative source? Why should they use not use Fox News and use the Guardian advice? Those are, you know, very deep questions because, of course, the Guardian can also get it wrong, and you know, journals can get it wrong. There've been examples of, of many examples of where peer reviews completely failed, and there's junk out there. So it's. Yeah, it's a difficult, difficult can of worms. There's possibly a world, I can't imagine this world, of course, but there's possibly a world where, you know, even political leaders might not tell the truth. <laughs> it's like one of those parallel universes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but no, but joking apart, you know, not too long ago, you could probably speak to people who would say, you know, you just have to respect the people in authority. They are the people who have the the truth yeah, definitely not so it's only in my lifetime absolutely we've gone from that you know authorities there you don't dare speak truth to power what now everybody is is questionable at every level and is there a sense in which these tools might be used to actually divine what is true to actually be able to sift through the internet to sift through the the sum of human knowledge the sum of understanding is there a some something that this ai could do to find 
the answer the big the answers to the big questions and find the truth and come finally come up with the answer of 42 um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but the question is, okay, so how would we quantify that? How would how do we quantify the truth? After all, these things are just processing numbers. It looks like words, but really it's all numbers. So how do we quantify the truth? You know, how do we quantify the truth in science is, is an interesting question as well. Because a big element of that is, you know, and one of the things I used to cover in this fourth year module is, the blessed Feynman, I'm a big fan of Feynman, but it is something of a cliche for physicists to wheel out the Feynman name. But one of the, the more famous Feynman quotes is he was asked to define what science is to, I believe, a conference of school teachers. And his one sentence definition was science is the belief in the ignorance of experts which is sort of gives us all a warm, fuzzy feeling. Yeah, it's all about being objective. and it's a, But that's not how science works. You know, the first few paragraphs, or indeed, in some cases, the first few pages of a scientific paper are what's come before. And it's really about building on what's come before. And a big element of that truth is consensus. So you could argue that you train these things to look for consensus. But of course, then the issue is, Consensus can certainly build about something that's complete nonsense. So it's, it has to come back to empirical evidence. It has to come back to empirical data, and it has to come back to the weight of the evidence. And, then, and that's certainly how science works. So people can have their opinions, but it always comes back to the experiment. People can, of course, screw up the experiment. But if 100 people or 100 groups do the experiment and they get the same result, that's getting us closer to the truth. We never ever, ever get to what the truth is, capital T in both cases, um, but it gets us closer. Could that be built in? I think in the case of sort of analysing scientific data, yeah. In terms of analysing political data, yeah. I wanted to get the perspective of somebody who's currently a student with their career in front of them. Here's Corel Green who's a regular contributor to the Physics World magazine and website. I'm uh, an astrophysics PhD student. I'm doing my PhD at the University of Nottingham. I study like black holes and galaxy evolution in the most simplest terms. There's like a specific type that I'm looking at and I'm trying to like see what they do to the galaxies that they're in and maybe how they're triggered in the first place because we're not 100% sure. So they're called um, active galactic nuclei, or AGN for short. That's what everyone calls them. And basically, in the middle of every galaxy, you have a supermassive black hole. And that's what all like the stars and the dust and the solar systems and things like that orbit around. Um, and if, just for whatever reason, there's enough dust close enough to the centre of a galaxy, it can start falling onto the black hole. And all of the gravity from like the densest object in the universe basically causes it to spew out a load of energy. So some galaxies look like they have a massive bright point in the middle of them where obviously most of them, the black hole's invisible. So you're looking out in the universe and you're just like, why is that one really bright? What's sort of going on there? And essentially I'm looking at those galaxies and being like, why are they bright? You know, what's caused this in the first place? And is it doing anything to the rest of the galaxy that it's in? Okay. Are you finding yeah. anything? I'm finding I'm finding some stuff. I'm finding some stuff, but 
the science process. You like you can't claim anything until you've had it looked at a lot. So got some ideas, but we're getting there. You said we don't really know how they form. I thought we did know how black holes form. We don't know why that type of like process is triggered in the first place. So we don't know how all of the sort of like dust and things started falling on to the black hole um, and why it isn't happening to every galaxy or why they exist in the first place. So that's what's going on. Um, we know why black holes form mostly, mostly. Does AI, does chat GPT, does any of this stuff come into what you're doing at the moment? So I don't use it uh, in my work specifically, but it has started coming up actually quite a lot just in general um, in my department. We actually had a seminar the other week all all about it, like what it could possibly mean for the future and things like that. Um, Because things like this sort of sort of come in waves because prior to this the new sort of like shiny thing is machine learning that a lot of people are now actually using in their research um so it was thinking about like uh in you know in the next like five ten years are people going to be just using ai as you know as much as they use any kind of coding um for the word sort of any anything that they use to code or are they going to try and like cut it out completely and things like that which has been quite interesting to see happen live almost. In the seminar, is, are people concerned about it? Is there excitement about it? Uh, it's definitely like a bit of both. There is the concern. The big thing that I sort of noticed straight away is how um, with sort of undergraduates and their work and things, there's already been, there's like a um, sort of plagiarism checker thing called turn it in that a lot of undergraduates might have heard of and i've heard how that's already been like updated to recognize like chat gpt and things like that um so there is uh worries about with actually like assessing people and seeing like what do they know what don't they know but then there's also really like how useful it could be like people seeing how it could be um really helpful in the future especially with like writing papers and writing especially the introduction of papers where you're you can't plagiarize other people but you have to say essentially the same things in a different way anyway so like for my work I'd have to define what a black hole is and motivate the reason for studying it but I'm not the first person ever to study a black hole so there is like words of just like oh why don't you try like writing it yourself doing things like that and then like um, putting it into chat GPT and seeing if it can help you write it in a bit of a like more concise way and things like that, which is really interesting to see. So, I mean, are you using it yourself in that way? Or? Mm, I So I haven't yet, but I think I'm going to. I think I'm definitely going to. Um, I've definitely got colleagues of mine who've used it to just think of titles for their papers as well. That's one sort of hard thing, trying to make it relevant to your field but actually have it be catchy so people are likely to read it and things like that um and as the sort of saying always goes especially in like the more mathematical sciences we're not necessarily that great at writing so (laughs) spent years and years learning all this hard maths and then suddenly you've got to now start writing papers which can be you know any kind of length but you know 10 15 pages worth of writing is doesn't come <laughs> naturally to most of us so it's very helpful in being like well this is the hardest bit can we can we get an ai to sort of supplement and help with it and how how much can we you know do before we have to be careful about obviously 
and plagiarizing or writing things that maybe aren't 100 percent like correct in the way that we mean and things like that so i specifically would use it to help me like with the actual like language and prose but when i'm using citations i need to specifically go through other like peer-reviewed papers that are published formally read those understand what they're saying and be like yes that's what i mean this paper backs it up i'm using that um because something that's actually very interesting is that like uh just in general we've had to play around with it and say like okay this you know this is a fact the sun is a star find like a uh paper that like i could use to cite it and it can spit out a link that looks like a paper citation but if you click it it either goes to nowhere it's like a fake link or it goes to a paper that's completely different so sort of recognize the kind of links that you want if you're looking at academic sources but it's not like actually understanding them it just knows how to sort of mirror it on a page so yeah you'd very much not want to use it to as a citation manager or anything like that yes yeah okay i'm tempted to think of it as a sort of a calculator for writing like we've had calculators for maths for a Mm. very long time you know people doing maths have had calculators and computers to help them with that maths and this is really a calculator in a way to help you with writing the difference is a calculator is as far as i know always right but chat isn't always right with its writing yeah exactly and um other things as well is that it, it can help. I, th- I think it's very much leaning towards it can help with writing, but you can't really use it to do the science. Um, we've seen it like we've, there are other more sort of specialized um, AIs that maybe do it a little bit better, but you, can be, you can't go and be like, oh, can you code me up uh, a code that does X, Y and Z? Um like it can do a few things very in like a sort of simple way, but you do have to go in and be like, okay, it's not quite getting that right, but I can go in and like edit this a bit and things like that. So it hasn't gotten very much to the sort of like coding mathsy side yet, but I think it's well on its way. Cause I know that it has access to the, um, anything that's on Git, which is where you can upload like code to for free, anything that's um, public it's got like access to and is sort of like learning from so we're not that far away from it sort of getting there very much so yeah i my my feeling is i don't think it's going to go away i think it's definitely going to become a part of like science and academia and things like that but it's gonna have to be done in a careful way so you're not just if you're not just going in and being like okay write me a code that does that um, here's the data. Uh, it's done it all perfectly. Um, let me go ahead with it in that way. Because then it's like, have you done it? Can you claim that you've done that? But what's to stop people doing that? Is it, I mean, is that a concern for you that effectively it might remove the need for people to do coding? Yeah, yeah. I think that is sort of like a concern that's coming up. Um, being like, oh no, it's going to sort of take take people's positions and jobs and things like that, and you'd have a room full of people typing into chat GPT instead of a room full of people typing into whatever IDE they're using and things like that. But um, maybe I have, maybe I have a bit of a cynical approach, but I also think, yes, this is all happening. Yes. This is all um, sort of open source and new and shiny and people having a look and going in, but you like, it is made by a company. They aren't going to, 
just like have it completely go free reign and things like that. I feel like monetization for it is coming fairly quickly. I don't know if you'd get away with just being like, oh, instead of hiring, <laughs> you know, a master student or PhD students, I'll get somebody to write this into chat GPT for me in the future. So I'm not sure how how far it's going to get before stuff starts coming up. Like, oh, pay us, pay us to use it or you only get three free searches today on it and things like that. Mm. Uh, yeah. So are you, but are you seeing, you know, other PhD students, other undergraduates using it in a way which concerns you? I do believe that that is starting to happen. I do think people are definitely getting homework questions or coursework questions, copying and pasting it into chat GPT and be like, answer this question. And then just taking out wherever it says, whether they've done it or not. And that is that is a problem that is a problem for universities because you know you need to you do need to know these things if you want to get the qualification that they are offering you um and it's hard because you can't always know what the answer will be because right now maybe it's quite in its infancy and you could be like, okay it spits out sort of five different versions of this and those are the ones that we know have come from chat gpt and so they have to be like filtered out but it won't it's very quickly you know evolving beyond that and it might it might get a lot harder to do uh, very soon i mean my my understanding is that quite soon it will be have an update where it's going to start being able to check in the veracity of what it's saying in in the next edition yeah yeah i i i do think that is coming and yeah it's it's not it's not going to be a trivial thing to sort of to sort of manage because you know, we're, we are scientists, we are supposed to, you know, enjoy innovation and things like that. And there is, I can't really see a, 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 an ultra valid reason to not use it. For example, like I said, in paper intros, where you're like, okay, these six papers are all saying different permutations of the same thing. And I need to be the seventh paper that says the different permutation of the same thing. But then is that versus I'm going to use this to like do my research or get a degree and, you know, not actually do any of it myself. So the knowledge is not there. And therefore, can you like claim fully that you've uh, done that and things like that? So it's a, it's, it's, it's going to be difficult because you want to, you want to take advantage of the good parts of it without just relying on it completely kind of thing yeah so what you want is humanity to look at something and take the best from it and and leave the rest behind yep yep if only (laughs) if only we could do that (laughs) oh god i mean sure certain aspects of society will do that but it it, you know we can't just hope that that will happen right and and yeah i wonder whether there's anything that can be done or do we need to do anything from your point of view to um, apart from monetizing it and restricting access to it, is there anything that needs to be done to to stop those people taking advantage of the the ease that it brings, or the possibly less pleasant ways of using it? Yeah, uh, I, I, mm, I don't know because it's like um, it's got to be mixed with. The, the bureaucracy even of like higher education in universities because most academia in at least that I know is done in universities 
yes, there's things like ESO and stuff like that. But like, you know, if you look around the globe, they're all just people, lecturers in different universities working on research and like trying to sort of blend it through because, you know, there's been loads of innovations. We've gone from like, just even in my lifetime, you've gone to smartphones. Then I was doing exams and they were just like smartphones and smartwatches need to be off. Um, and then like COVID happened and they had to redo all of exams so people could do them at home. So obviously the questions became very different and also a lot harder because, you know, a lot of them you could like Google prior to COVID and they're just like, well, if they're at home, they can't just Google the answers. I need like more long form <laughs> thinking from them, I guess. Um, and, and now the next one is like with, with AI and just, typing something into literally just a chatbot and getting an answer out and deciding, well, actually in this case, it's fine. And in, and in this case, we can't really like use it very much, but I don't know, like what, what, what could you do if it gets to like, it gets intelligent enough that you could sit down and be like, okay, here's like some data I have, uh, code up and analyze it and then tell me if there are any differences or similarities or whatever else. And if it produces a reasonable piece of work and you've gone through and checked it, then <laughs> would you not use it? You know? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a hard thing to say that you wouldn't use it, isn't it? Yeah. But, yeah. yeah. Cause I, cause that would, that would be like, well, what are we doing if we didn't use it actually? So mm. well, if you were, Considering the world before smartphones, as you say, and how smartphones have changed the world, do you think ChatGPT and other things are going to change the world in a similar way? In the way that it just becomes very sort of common, I can very easily imagine it in search engines. And and I just don't think search engines are that different from it, right? Whether you like it or not, it seems to be here to stay. I think it's going to just become more and more used in different things. And you'll have to adapt to deal with it. I think I'm wary of it, but I don't think it's going to go away. And I'm interested to see how it's dealt with, because as much as it's sort of coming into our lives, I'm not like a, you know, a head of school, a head of department or a head of like science at a university or in like a massive collaboration. And so I think they are thinking about it and they've de- I've definitely seen it. I definitely know undergrad to use it. I mean, I would, if I was still doing an undergrad degree, I'd be like, damn, this is going to help me. Let me open up a chat GPT account and see what I can do. So I want to see how it sort of goes in the next couple of years and if they'll either embrace it or re- sort of try and filter it out as much as possible. If chat GPT and others evolve to the point or are updated to the point where they can do essentially the the work that you want, the science, the coding, the, the equations, whatever it is that you're doing for your research. What role do you see for yourself in that? I think it's difficult because if a, a department or a collaboration or something like that re, like changes the roles so that they get rid of all their PhD students and replace them with chat AI, I do think that they would be fine for like a while but then I think they just run into the problem that's kind of happening already but a lot faster in that like there's a lot of a a mass exodus in academia sort of finish your PhD don't want to become a postdoc 
don't want to become a lecturer for whatever various reasons there are. And then you sort of run out of people to, to, <laughs> to keep things going. Um, so I don't think it's going to literally just get rid of us completely, but I do think they need to be careful about it. Cause you know, at the end of the day, you need somebody to lecture, you need somebody to mark, you need people to teach. And if you aren't, if you haven't got PhD students to become those people, then you're just going to lose them all. If you could ask AI at any form to answer any question in physics, what would you ask it? Oh, that is hard. <laughs> that is very hard. I, what initially comes to mind is maybe something that's like, like Nobel Prize worthy, I think, just for, for, like my personal for my you know personal curiosity um but if i if i if i could ask it any questions and i knew with like 100% certainty it would be right i think actually i'd ask it the like most vaguest question that i could possibly think so it could just solve everything like oh what's the grand unified theory and then it just spits out <laughs> everything that we're looking into but but I would only do that after I finish my PhD. I want to be a doctor first. <laughs> then I'd like <laughs> collapse it for the rest of everybody else. <laughs> I'd wait. I would literally wait until I'm done. <laughs> That's it. That would be it. I put that same question to Phil Moriarty. Oh, what's the nature of the wave function? What is the wave function? So we still, after 100 years or so of quantum mechanics, right at the core of it is this thing called the wave function. So it's this mathematical object. It's not an experimental observable, as you say. And there's lots and lots of debate between what's called the ontological camp without going too philosophical and the epistemological camp in terms of is the wave function telling us about the nature of reality itself or is it telling us about our information on, the, on reality? What is the, the nature of the wave function? That would, that would, that, that would be it, yeah, <laughs> for me. <laughs> if ChatGPT wants to replace physicists in the real world, it's going to have to develop that kind of curiosity. I'd like to thank Karel Green and Philip Moriarty for joining me for this episode of the podcast, and I'd like to thank you for sticking with me with my hay-fevered voice. We'll be back next month, when hopefully my voice will be somewhere back to normal, and we'll be exploring... Moore's Law. And thank you very much for listening. Physics World.